So today we're in part two. If you want to look in your Bible. By the way, we've got some new pew Bibles that are coming. They, the first case came in last week and I was pretty excited about them. So we're going to have some nice new pew Bibles coming in. So you can take out your Bible, look at it on the phone. We'll have it on slides. But we're going to look at Judges 7 and we're looking at part two of Gideon's unlikely army. And again, I, I want you to know we had really much of our scriptural teaching plan through the fall, but we hit pause on it. And so I want you to, to know we're going to finish today. And then the next couple of weeks, I thought in view of looking at Gideon's army, we would take two weeks and look at spiritual warfare. And so we're going to do that next Sunday and the following Sunday. I want us to look at Jesus and some of the things he says about the kingdom and spiritual warfare. And then we're going to look at the Apostle Paul, probably Ephesians 6. I think it's important because I do think that we're in a time of spiritual warfare and it's good for us to look at the scriptures and what they have to say to encourage us and embolden us. So we'll do that. And then once we do that, we'll come back to our series on spiritual practices. All right. So just so you know what's laid out for the next several weeks. And it's just really important. We want to make sure every step that our faces are in the scriptures. We're interacting with God through scripture. It does something in our hearts and our minds and empowers us, especially in peculiar times like this. So last week we saw what was the beginning of Gideon's army and they were being oppressed big time by the, the Midianites and we saw that these local bullies, do you remember kids? We saw that they were like the mean bullies at school and they kept coming to the Israelites and taking things from them. They took their livestock and they took their crops and they took everything from them and the Israelites became desperate and so they cried out to God, God help us, Lord save us and the Lord sent a prophet and then the Lord raised up a farmer named Gideon and so in our last time together we were just seeing how the Lord was preparing him to mobilize an army so we're gonna look at that today I, I want you to know Gideon isn't just um, a random person he's particularly important if you think about the dozens and dozens of people in the Old Testament Gideon is actually highlighted in the New Testament so in Hebrews 11 it speaks of Gideon and says that he is one of the Old Testament saints who through faith conquered kingdoms, he administered justice, he obtained promises from God. And then I love this phrase about him. Again, this is Hebrews 11, 32 and 33. It says that Gideon won strength out of weakness. He won strength out of weakness and he became mighty in war. So that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at Judges 7 and we're going to look at three scenes from this story and we're going to see the way that God mobilized an army then and then we're going to see what we can glean from that about God, how God continues to mobilize his people, his army now. So Judges 7, I'm going to read verses 1 through 8 then we'll look at three things in particular about God mobilizing his army, his people. Judges 7, 1 through 8. This is the word of God. Then Jerubal, that is Gideon, and again, that was his nickname. 
That was his nickname from the previous chapter, and it basically means let Baal fight for himself. And so Gideon tore down Baal's altar, and then he was nicknamed the one who bullied Baal, basically. So that's what his nickname means, the one who bullied Baal. Let him fight for himself. So then Jerubel, that is Gideon, and all the troops that were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them, below the hill of Morah in the valley. The Lord's going to speak to him three times. This is the first time. The Lord said to Gideon, the troops with you are too many for me to give you the Midianites into their hand. Israel would only take the credit away from me, saying, my own hand has delivered me. Now therefore proclaim this in the hearing of the troops. Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home. Thus Gideon sifted them out. 22,000 returned and 10,000 remained. Then the Lord said to Gideon, the troops are still too many. How would you like to hear that? You still have too many willing soldiers. Gideon saying, wait, what? The troops are still too many. Take them down to the water and I will sift them out for you there. When I say this one will go with you, he shall go with you. And when I say this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So he brought the troops down to the water and the Lord said to Gideon, catch this, all those who lap the water with their tongues as a dog laps, you shall put to one side. And all those who kneel down to drink, putting their hands to their mouths, you shall put to the other side. Verse 6, the number of those that lapped was 300, but all the rest of the troops knelt down to drink water. Verse 7, then the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 that lapped, I will deliver you and give the Midianites into your hand. Let all the others go to their homes. So we took the jars of the troops from their hands and their trumpets. They brought those things expecting to be in battle. And he sent all the rest of Israel back to their own tents, but retained the 300. The camp of Midian was below him in the valley. So this sets the stage for a battle that's about to happen. And the Lord begins to enact his plan. Step one is reduce the troops. Anybody else scratching their head at this moment? This doesn't sound like modern warfare. This is not a very reasonable, logical tactic. And the Lord says, first of all, everyone who's fearful, go home. Everyone who has fear in their hearts, you're free to go. Go back to your tents. And how many leave? 22,000. And I'm sure Gideon is saying, thanks, Lord. We had 22,000 ready to go to battle. They were fearful. Who's usually, you know, everyone has usually got a little fear in their hearts before battle, but you just sent 22 of my willing soldiers back to their tent. Only 10,000 remained. God's not done. We read it. Verse 6 and following, God says, I've got more sifting to do. 
So I want you to go down to the river and I want you to watch the way that people drink. There's typically three ways of interpreting this. Amanda and I were talking about this yesterday and we really don't know the test and the reasoning behind it. We just know that God was up to reducing the numbers. The first test was who gets down on all fours and laps the water like a dog? The Lord says, I want you to set those aside over here. And then the next group, who comes and kneels down and brings the water up to their mouth? Oftentimes this story is misread and people think that it's those who kneel down alertly and look around with awareness and it's not those. It's the ones who are on their faces lapping the water like a dog. And the Lord says, I want the lappers, not the kneelers. We really don't know why this test was what it was. Maybe it, could, it was arbitrary. It, maybe it could have been those with brown sandals over here and those with black sandals over here. We just don't know. Some commentators think that maybe the Lord is picking the people that are less alert. The ones who are not even looking around at all and they're just putting their faces in the water and the Lord says, I want them. They're less alert, they're less aware, so that when the victory is won, you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that it wasn't because of the awareness, it wasn't the alertness, it wasn't the vigilance of these people, but I picked the lappers. We're really not sure, but nonetheless, the Lord is sifting this army. We talked about this a few weeks ago. It's actually been a, about three months ago time flies, that the Lord has been doing some reducing and pruning here at our Lord's. And the leadership team, the elders, I mean, we've asked the Lord, why, why do you do this? <laughs> why is it that you do this as we're articulating fresh vision and we're getting things clear and there's fresh passion and direction and we're, we're joining the vineyard movement, we're going to plant churches, we're going to be a, a training center. Why is it that you prune and reduce our numbers? And the answer is, we don't know. We don't know. But we love our brothers and sisters who have been here and we send them off with great blessing. You can ask all of them who we're still deep friends with. We send people off with blessing and we smile and we say, the Lord be with you. The Lord take you into another church where you can enrich and use your gifts and the Lord bless you as you take the gospel. I don't know why the Lord works this way, but he does. And so three months ago I said, take heart, be courageous. This is the way the Lord works. And the Lord likes humility. And the Lord likes to do things his way, not our way. And so I think that's what this text shows, is that the Lord reduces and the Lord prunes so that God gets credit for whatever happens. And I, I tell you, friends, I 
believe that the Lord is going to do some things in the coming days, the coming years here that we're going to marvel at. And it's going to be him. It's going to be him. And he's drawing the people that resonate with our vision. And a ship is going in a particular way. And if people want to go with us, get on the ship. Grab the oars. Work with us. All hands on deck. And if not, it is okay to go and get on another ship, another local church. We bless people. So do you hear me on that? I just want to reiterate that. We are Gideon's army here, and the Lord is doing something here just as he is in other local churches. We just want people to be all in with what we're doing here. All in. And if not, there are many other amazing Christian families to join. And I do, I'd, I'll probably have words with the Lord. Why is it your ways are always the opposite of what we tend to think? Why is it? Think about what the Lord has done through the narrative that we read in Scripture. I mean, it's really a common thread. The Lord reduces, the Lord chooses, the Lord upends human wisdom. We talked about this last week. With the Exodus event, the Lord chooses the least likely enslaved people group and says, I'm going to use them. I'm going to fill them with my glory, give them the revelation of who I am, and bless the nations of the earth through them. Then this person named Jesus of Nazareth is born in the armpit of the Middle East. Nazareth. Nothing good came out of Nazareth. And that's where the Lord sent his son. The father sent the son to Nazareth. And then who did Jesus choose? Did he choose the aristocratic, powerful leaders with lots of money and wealth and influence from powerful families? No, he chose 12 ragtag people on the margins of society. It's the way the Lord works. He does it with Gideon. He himself did it. Then he said, I'm going to conquer the earth and fill the earth with the good news of the kingdom and my kingdom will expand to all nations. How are you going to do that, Jesus? I'm going to die on a cross like a criminal and let Rome put me to death. His ways are higher than our ways. And I think this story invites us above all things to say, Lord, your ways are higher. We submit to you, your ways, your will. We embrace it. A second thing is found in verses 9 through 15. This is equally fascinating here. Along with reducing the troops before they engage in battle, they get to overhear a dream. And so again, I, I love this story. It makes room for Gideon and the others who are dealing with fear and unbelief. The Lord says to Gideon at verse 9, that same night the Lord said to Gideon, Get up, attack the camp, for I've given it into your hand. Look at verse 10. But Gideon, if you fear, if there's fear in your heart to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura. And so the Lord again is acknowledging the gravity of this, and he encourages him, go down to the camp and do some eavesdropping. This is actually one of the first instances we have of espionage. And there's 
uh, it's known that Gideon was one of the first spies. So they're snooping down there and the Lord has told him, go and listen to what's going on in the Midianite, the enemy camp. And what do they hear? They overhear a dream. We're not going to read it, but essentially what's going on here is a couple of guys are talking and one of them has had a dream. And the dream is that a barley loaf, basically a roll, is cascading down a mountain and hits a tent. And the person is interpreting it and saying, this is a sign that the Israelites are about to come and crush our camp. Why is that? It sure seems strange, doesn't it? Actually, let's read it. Verse 10. I read verse 9, but let's read this. Then we'll make a few comments. Again, we're digging into some of these Old Testament passages that we may hear about, but it's important for you to walk through it. Then you have a more informed opinion and understanding. So at verse 10, the Lord has been speaking to Gideon, but if you fear to attack, go down to the camp with your servant, and you will hear what they say. And afterward, your hands will be strengthened to attack the camp. Then he went down with his servant to the outpost of the armed men that were in the camp. The Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley as thick as locusts. So it's letting us know they only have 300 and the enemy has thousands. And their camels were without number, countless as the sand on the seashore. When Gideon arrived, there was a man telling a dream to his comrade, a fellow soldier. And he said, I had a dream. And in it, a cake of barley bread tumbled down into the camp of Midian. And it came to the tent and struck it so that it fell. And it turned upside down and the tent collapsed. In the ancient world, dreams were very significant. Listen to what his comrade answered. This is no other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, a man of Israel. Into his hand, God has given Midian and the army. So in the ancient world, they were familiar with symbols, and, and it's, this symbolized the agricultural people, the Israelites. It's funny because one of the nuances of the Hebrew word of that barley bread means moldy. So actually, if you could read it in the Hebrew, it would say there was a moldy, stale roll of barley bread coming down the mountain which just accentuates again the material that God is using here. God is using a moldy roll. <laughs> Fascinating. Not a beautiful, wonderful, nice and shiny thing, but a moldy barley bread here. And so, what is Gideon's response? Look at verse 15. He hears this dream. And again, what's being conveyed here is that the Lord is giving revelation even through the enemies of Gideon. The Lord is speaking. The Lord loves to speak to Gideon even through the enemies in the enemy camp. So Gideon is hearing the voice of God as his dream is being recounted. And what's his response here? Look at verse 15. When Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped. He said, yes, Lord. And he returned to the camp of Israel and he says what? Get up for the Lord has given the army of Midian into your hand. Friends, the Lord loves to speak. 
The Lord spoke then and the Lord continues to speak now. What is it with dreams? If you think about the Old Testament, it's filled with it. The New Testament is full of the coming of Christ. Matthew 1.20, the Lord appears to Joseph, the father of Jesus, and speaks to him through a dream. The Old Testament is full of it. One of my favorite passages, write this down, you can go look at it later, Job 33, 15 through 18, is a hallmark passage about the Lord speaking. It says basically that the Lord appears and the Lord speaks to a person in their dreams. When they're lying flat on their back, he can warn them and speak to them and steer their lives. The Lord speaks through dreams. And as we talk about here, we make space for these things. This isn't just something strange that God did back in the days of Jesus or back in the days of Gideon. God still gives dreams. And we've been noticing with the Spirit's activity among us, God's given people dreams. Who here is having some spiritual dreams, maybe in ways that you haven't had in some time? Let me just see your hand. Yeah, it's one of the signs of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, Acts 2 so that there'll be dreams and visions for the young and old. Now it's important to interpret the d dreams biblically. You know, there, we can have pizza dreams, can have indigestion or stress dreams. So what we're talking about here though is acknowledging the voice of the Lord comes through the scriptures, the voice of the Lord comes through counsel from other people, the voice of the Lord comes to us through dreams. I think it's important to, to make space for that. A third thing here found, it's the final section of the text here, verses 16 through 23. I'm gonna read it. And it's the routing of the Midianites. And I'm gonna make a comment because there's something particularly unusual in this. It's, it's violent. There's some violence here, so we'll come back and comment on that. But listen, this is the fulfillment of what the whole thing has been leading up to. God mobilizing and now God leading this unlikely army to engage people who are outnumbering them by thousands. So at verse 16, Gideon's got 300 men and he's going to divide them up into three groups of 100. Verse 16. After he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. Let me just stop for a moment here. Does that sound like they're ready for battle? Something missing here and it's called swords. Hey Gideon, I've reduced you to 300 and now I want you to divide further into groups of 100 and I want you to fight with a jar and a trumpet and a torch. Thanks again, Lord. Your ways are higher. We'll see what happens though. Verse 17, he said to them, look at me and do the same. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. Watch what I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then you also blow the trumpets around the whole camp and shout for the Lord, and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. It's about midnight when they had just set the watch and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. 
So three companies, the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars, holding in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow, and they cried a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place all around the camp, and all the men in the camp ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the three hundred trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his fellow and against all the army, and the army fled as far as Bethshita toward Zererah, and as far as the border of Abel, Mahola, and Tabath. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali, and so they're basically mobilizing all the people in the area. And what ends up happening here is Gideon and his men capture the two enemy captains and behead them. So I want to look at this text here, make a few comments. So as I mentioned, they're armed not with swords. It's interesting though because the text says they're shouting a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. So essentially they're coming into the enemy camp at midnight as some men are leaving their watch and others are entering. And so there's a little bit of transition happening there and they've got people coming from every direction and they're shouting about a sword and they're making a huge ruckus. They've hidden the torches in the jar and now they bring the torches out to give the impression that there's more troops and all mayhem breaks out. It creates panic. It's actually a brilliant strategy, isn't it? So what appeared to be foolishness ends up being brilliance and they defeat the enemy with only 300 by creating this panic. And then the, it's like the victory sends shockwaves through the area and other reserve troops are jumping in now and they've got their opportunity to drive these bullies from the region and so they chase them out and chase them out further and further and further. And chapter eight goes on to say that they live peacefully because of this victory that happens. Now I wanna make a, a comment here because is anyone else troubled by the idea of beheading in a text? If this is the word of God, if you're not troubled by that, we'll talk later. <laughs> you can reach out to Jennifer and get some healing prayer. Um, this is called a text of terror. In academic circles, people that study the Bible call this a text of terror. And this is where it helps to have 2,000 years of interpreting texts like this. So you've got New Testament believers who are looking back on a moment like this and they're saying, this is the word of God, but how do we interpret and apply a passage like this? Are you with me? Do you feel that? This is odd. The whole scene leading up to the battle is fascinating. Yes, the Lord's ways are different, but why in the world would someone behead the leaders here? How, how can we glean wisdom from this today in 2020? And there's an early church father named Augustine. Some of you have heard St. Augustine of Hippo. He's writing in the fourth century and he read this passage right here 
And he came up with something called the hermeneutic of love. Let's say that together. Say hermeneutic. Again, I can't hear that. That was weak. Her hermeneutic. McGregor's hermeneutic, right? You were just talking about this yesterday, weren't you? Sitting around. Hermeneutic is basically an interpretive lens. Think of it in terms of like spectacles through which you could read and understand something like this. It's a, gri a grid through which you read a passage like this. And St. Augustine says, in a passage like this, you have to use a hermeneutic of love. What do you mean by that? When Jesus was approached in Mark 12 by some of the interpreters of the law, they said, as you look at scripture, what is the most important commandment in all of the Bible. And what does Jesus say in Mark 12? What is it? Let me hear. Love for God. Love for neighbor. So what Augustine says, you read a passage like this through that lens. You put on the spectacles, love for God, love for neighbor. And if your interpretation is not in line with love for God, and love for neighbor, you're misreading it and you're misapplying it. I'm gonna let that sink in for a moment here. I've used a big word, but incredibly practical. You with me on that? An interpretive lens of love to read a passage like this. Jesus gives it. He says, on these commandments hang all other commandments, love for God, and love for people. So really Augustine is pointing to Jesus, the greatest Bible interpreter of all time, and he's saying he's already given us the way. So you read a passage like this, and if your interpretation is not in line with love, you've misread it. So Christians, and we've done this before in our history, we've taken texts like this and we've justified aggression and violence. And that is not a right reading of this passage. You with me on this? I know I kind of geeked out there for a moment, but this is immensely practical. If we're gonna be serious readers and students and prayers and livers of the Bible, this is important to understand something like this. Reading through the lens of love. So you know what Augustine says? He says you take a passage like this and you read it spiritually. You read it in view of love for God and love for people. And this is precisely what the Apostle Paul does in Ephesians 6. This is why I want to talk about spiritual warfare next week. Paul is reading passages like this. And what does he say in Ephesians 6? We battle, what is it? We battle not against flesh and blood, but our battle is against spiritual forces. So you take a text like this, and you say, Lord, we are going to be aggressive. The kingdom of God advances forcefully. We're going to be militant in love. And we're going to be militant and aggressive like the Lord's army in the spirit. Do you see that? So we take a passage like this as God's unlikely army. And we say, Lord, we are going to take ground. We're going to embrace your ways that seem foolish to us, the ways of the cross, but we're going to advance as an army of love 
and we're going to do damage in the spirit realm. We're gonna talk more about that. And the only beheading that goes on with Christians is what Christ does in the spiritual realm. So as New Testament believers, we read a passage like this and we say, Christ himself, the word of God in the flesh, has beheaded the enemy. He has come in through his death, through his resurrection, through his ascension to the Father, and he has cut off the power of the enemy, and now we get to move in and take land as his mobilized army. So we're gonna talk more about that over the next couple of weeks. So as we finish up here, Gideon's unlikely army, he reduces, the Lord reduces the troops. He gives encouragement through the revelation of a dream. And then he gives the victory so everyone knows the Lord alone gets the credit. So Lord, we pray that in the coming weeks, for folks here at Our Lord's and other churches, that you would continue to mobilize your army. We pray that you would mobilize this local church like never before, that we would have our confidence in you, that we'd be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, that we would be part of advancing the kingdom mightily for the glory of God. We'd be part of Matthew 24, taking your gospel to the ends of the earth. Thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you for people that have been reading and pondering and living your word for 2,000 years. We, we love you. We love the scriptures. We pray in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.